0: Episode 78 of The Bowery Boys, The Great Fire of 1835.
1: Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey.
0: The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com.
1: Hello there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. This week's episode is, believe it or not, I think one of the most important events... In New York City history. I think it's... Wow. It's very monumental. It's a a dramatic story, as you'll see.
0: Well, it greatly transformed the young city. It was a traumatic event that actually led to the rebuilding and modernization of the town.
1: But the actual events of it are very... they're heart-stopping, they're thrilling, they're a little bit depressing... We are
0: talking about the fire of 1835, which is often referred to as the Great Fire.
1: Yes. Now, many great cities, of course, have their own great fires. Uh, London, San Francisco, and, of course, Chicago. And New York has actually had two or three, but this is really the biggest one. And I guess you could see the last truly great fire.
0: So we'll take you there, not too close to the flames, but close enough to see where it happened, what streets are still there today that were completely rebuilt,
1: it is true, Tom. There's one street in particular which we'll, ta- we'll tell you all about at the end of this podcast where you can l- literally see the sort of effects of the Great Fire at, like immediately on the actual shape of the street.
0: So put on your mittens and bundle up because we're going to step outside into that icy night of the Great Fire of 1835.
1: The locations that we're going to be talking about today are all in the financial district, sort of like Wall Street, but on the east side, around the shore of the East River and sort of going in towards around Broad Street.
0: Right, just almost up to Broadway. And we should actually point out, Greg, that as we're recording this podcast, um, and notably we're recording in the morning, which we hardly ever do, so you get to hear us caffeinated and without the whole day's experience trudging us down. That's
1: true, yes, well-rested.
0: And there is a sound of a helicopter going by over overhead, several helicopters. What's what's going on with that, Greg?
1: Well, actually, just north of the area in which we're going to be talking about, today the disgraced financier, Bernie Madoff, is being taken to court today. So, um, And since we're kind of nearby that, they're literally like... A dozen helicopters, like, zooming through the sky. So if there's any kind of, like, if it sounds like a vacuum cleaner in the background, no, we're not being discourteous. <laughs> it, we're not being just, Right,
0: it's just Channel 4 news going by overhead with a live cam shot. But Bernie is actually heading down nearly to the fire district.
1: Bernie to the burning district. Yes. Of, uh,
0: Before the burning made off <laughs> with, with half of Manhattan.
1: So let me back up here, Tom, and, uh, uh, you know, give you a little brief recap of sort of the fire history of the island of Manhattan up until 1835. Get you up okay. to that point. Now, New York, as in, like, you know, all pre-industrial cities are, let's just say they're very flammable. <laughs> exactly how are they flammable? Well, I mean, you're talking about up until this time, a city of mostly wooden structures that are all built closely together. hmm People have torches and lanterns. You also don't have like proper fire safety codes at this time and those right. types of precautions. As and
0: tiny little streets that have sort of grown with the city from its from its earliest days. So not easy to get through with fire carts and such
1: fire spreads very easily in a city like New York. I mean, fire's been with New York almost since the beginning. As a matter of fact, the first documented fire was in sixteen twenty eight. New York's barely just a few years old at that time, so... We'll have
0: to really look that one up for episode 720.
1: (laughs) The first fire of New York City. You know, by, by 1648, the town of New Amsterdam was already passing these city ordinances for fire prevention... Uh, primarily, believe it or not, a lot of these fires were because people had wooden chimneys that they weren't cleaning. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there was the, the first fire ordinance was that everyone needed to, by law, had to clean their chimneys between the fort and the fresh water. So everyone basically between Fort Fort Amsterdam, uh-huh. you know, at the foot of the island, up to the, quote, freshwater, up to collect Pond. So oh, anything right, in yeah. between there was under this law to clean the chimneys. Um, you know, wh- when there was a fire, I mean, what did they have to fight it with? They had these crude leather fire buckets, very basic rudimentary equipment, no, ho- you know, no real hoses to speak of. But one benefit that New York's always had is it's surrounded by water, of course.
0: The rivers would certainly come in handy, you know, if a fire would break out, say, when it's not Freezing outside, and you have access to the water.
1: And there's also wells and cisterns that would also be used for this. Now, around 1657 is when the sort of first, what you could call, not really a fire department, but people who are actually out looking for fires, they actually called these men the Rattle Watch because. They would walk the streets from dusk until dawn. There was sort of like a police slash fire department, and they called them the Rattle Watch, believe it or not, because they actually had these large rattles that they would wear on the side. And when something happened, when there was like a fire, they would just shake these rattles, and so everyone would just jump up and react to what was happening. Wow. Wow. They also called these men prowlers because they also tended to sometimes get up to mischief on top of watching their own city. Were they only allowed to
0: rattle their sticks if they if they spotted a fire or well, it was, I, all, any kind of
1: trouble? Oh, all, all sorts of trouble, you know, like a, <clears throat> a fight, a, a, a fight, a marauding group of pigs or something, I don't know. By the way, another ordinance at this time had that each citizen of the town of New Amsterdam, before they went to bed, had to put three buckets of water out on their porch, just. In case a fire happened, so they could run and get these buckets of water. Wow! So, with the British takeover, there was they still hadn't necessarily improved the methods of fighting fire. However, I was I will say in seventeen thirty one. But the British did get their very first hand fire engine. Have you seen these these old antique fire engines with a no, little pump, pump on them? Yes. Interestingly, back then, it was actually the mayor and the aldermen of the city who were actually in charge of storing these. Like, there wasn't really a fire department. So it was it was up to the mayor and himself to kind of store these things. So five years later... New York actually got its very first fire station, believe it or not, which is on the very street and block as the New York Stock Exchange. Now, up during British occupation, there were were two major fires that affected New York City. The first one was in 1741. We call this the Great Conspiracy of 1741. There were a series of fires that were purposefully set, including one that was at Fort George, which was the former Fort Amsterdam when the British took over. They called it Fort George. A fire was set there, and many other homes and businesses were destroyed, but they were purposefully set. Um, this was a bit of arson. So, with, through whispers and rumors, everyone thought that it was some kind of a slave revolt, a plot mm. between slaves and some poor whites. So, a massive witch hunt went on at this time. There were several people who were killed. Two were burned at the stake because of this, because they thought it was this, they had to squash this awful plot which of course didn't really happen it was all a bunch of hysteria um a very fascinating story which we'll have to cover in a future podcast that was the first major fire then of course we've covered the second one tom if you remember which happened on september 21st and 22nd in 1776 please see our podcast on the british invasion for more information but this was the fire our podcasts it's a two-parter that's correct this happened a little bit after the continental army fled manhattan when the british came in and took it over the fire started at a tavern called the Fighting Cox Tavern on Whitehall Street. It destroyed between 400 and 500 buildings, or basically one quarter of the entire city. This was not started by the Continental Army. You know, this was a this was a really horrible fire because, of course, not only was a quarter of the city destroyed, but it was like the city was filled with people at this time, and a lot of the influx of war refugees and all of these soldiers. Right. The fire was extinguished by the British Navy, but the, the thing to remember... About this particular fire, about what we're about to talk about, this fire happened in kind of a nice fall day. Um, it was the, per- the, the fire, 1776. fire of seventeen seventy six no. in September. It was a nice fall day. You know, there were still crude firefighting methods at this time. But you had hundreds of men in the city, and they were all soldiers. They were all prepared to take Ready care to of fight this a fire. So they yeah. were able to stop it before it got worse. I mean, it got really terrible. The original Trinity Church was burnt down. Lots of other things were burnt down. I'm not saying this was a not a bad fire, but compared to what we're about to talk about, it could have been worse. So, Tom, get us up to speed then of what life is like in 1835.
0: Well, so the city of New York was at this point about a quarter of a million people. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have to remember that the Erie Canal had come into the picture, into the city, and had been a boom to the city's economy. It was only
1: like 10 years old at this time, right? So they were really reaping the benefits now, profits. Right,
0: and it meant that all of these exporters from the city, all these manufacturers uh, really benefited from being able to ship to the rest of the country. So the city was filled with factories and with merchants of all kinds. So much trade was flourishing, and of course the stock exchange, or the merchants exchange, as it was called then. However, there was also a Serious water shortage because Collect Pond had been covered over what three decades before it had been drained, that, right? Right, drained, and then of course on top of it had been built all of these apartment buildings or residences that started to sink into the land because it was never properly drained. And rich people were fleeing that neighborhood, and of course taking their place were the newly arrived, mostly Irish immigrants who were fleeing their own potato famine. So we had this sort of dynamic happening. People were actually selling water in the street. Men would go around with carts and sell buckets of it in the street. Except this particular December that we're talking about in 1835, it was so cold... That at the week of the fire, people couldn't even walk around selling water. The temperatures were freezing. Some reports two days before the fire that the temperature had actually fallen to 17 degrees below zero, I did, I which seems really in- that incredible. Seems inc-
1: I mean, it's, it was a cold winter here in New York this year, but that's, I have never quite experienced that.
0: Just three years before, in the summer of 1832, the young city of New York had experienced a terrible cholera breakout. It it left the city empty. I mean, half the city fled that summer. Other people couldn't even get out of the city. Uh, The the poorest people were stuck in five points, uh, couldn't really take off. Well, 4,000 people died uh, during the June to October 1832 cholera epidemic, and that really didn't number also on the city's police and fire force. But there still were firemen. However, two days before the fire of 1835, on December 14th, there was another fire, and it had depleted resources that were already pretty feeble,
1: Now, we should mention that when you say fire department, it's not exactly what we would consider fire department today. I should have said firefighters. Because it was mostly a volunteer organization, correct? Right. And they weren't getting paid. Right. It was very disorganized. It was very localized. Well, weren't there competing groups? Yes, and that would actually continue to be a little bit of a problem even a little bit after the story. It wasn't organized in the way that it seems logical that ours is organized today, if that makes any sense. So it's December 16th, and it's 9 p.m. at night, and it is freezing in the city. It's very dark.
0: and Most this- people have gone to sleep.
1: We're in the area of the city that is a little bit below Wall Street, in this sort of eastern area of what we call the financial district today. So basically like Wall Street with Broad Street sort of being the, the western edge of the area we're talking about. And then of course, like South Street or the edge of the water would be the eastern part of mm. what the area we're talking about.
0: And this area was mostly filled with trading houses, with factories and warehouses and merchants and, I- and some residences.
1: Some, but a lot of the uh, a lot of these merchants who would normally have lived above their shops, for instance, you know, this is now an era where they're able to like move have right. a house as separate from their own from their own shops. Right. There is a watchman, um, you know, walking through the streets, and his name is William Hayes. And, you know, he's probably got a cloak on. It's really cold. He's got a lantern just walking these dark city streets. And, you know, his job is to sort of patrol. You can probably see his breath because it's so cold. He probably wants to go in, smoke his pipe, and, you know, maybe have a mug of beer. When he gets to the corner of Pearl Street and Exchange Street, which is no longer there, it's today's Beaver Street, Mm -hmm. when he gets to this intersection, uh, precisely at a building at 25 Merchant Street... He notices that a building is on fire. It's actually this building for a dry goods store uh, called Comstock and Andrews. It's a five-story building, and one of the upper floors is on fire. Apparently what happened is there was a broken gas line that had uh, burst sometime during the early evening. It had ignited some, uh, some coals that were on a stove. So this fire started raging. He noticed it. He ran and he got some help. By the time he got back, unfortunately, this little fire that had just been in one building was spreading rapidly. This is the dry goods district of Manhattan. So it's you know it's close to the piers this is where things kind of like got right off the boat and you can sell the merchandise right there in these stores. Within a few minutes, the fire starts raging. Within 30 minutes of finding this fire, it had already spread to 50 buildings. It was quickly moving because the biggest enemy that night wasn't just the fire. It was the fact that it was really windy. And this wind was carrying the fire just almost as you could just see it, like, Mm. jumping from building to building. And there was just nothing you could do because it was on some of these upper floors.
0: Mm. And the buildings were filled with fabrics. and
1: The worst possible things you can imagine that are just going to be flammable and just explode into flames the moment that one of these embers lands upon it. By 10 p.m., one hour after the fire was first discovered, 40 stores were Totally blazing, and so volunteer firemen were getting their stuff together to like fight this blaze. What they're dealing with—it's just—it's—I can't underscore this how horrible this night was. It was a winter hell. You had all this winds and the freezing. It prevented the firefighters from really doing their jobs.
0: Well, because they would rush over to the East River, which of course they're right next to. But only a part of it was not frozen. There was just a bit of a channel that that hadn't completely frozen over. And then, yeah. So how were they supposed to get water?
1: Well, they, they well then they would they drilled holes into the ice, which is just unbelievable, just to get to like the water that wasn't frozen. Mm. You know, they'd stick the water down and they they'd fill their engines. And so when they actually did get water, though, the problem is. You throw it onto the fire, but it's so windy that the water blew back into the firefighters, and right. it was just...
0: And it, it would actually freeze on their bodies, and so there were firemen who were actually covered in ice.
1: And that's when there, the water was even able to be delivered, because sometimes the water would freeze in the hoses and in the buckets by the time it got there.
0: Right, and the firemen were actually sort of stomping up and down on their hoses, not only to keep their... F- feet from freezing, but also to try to get the water to break it up so that it could trickle out of those hoses.
1: I mean, at certain points, they just had to stand there and they would pour brandy in their boots just to sort of keep themselves warm, knowing that we can't fight this. And the sounds you must have heard, like the crackling of flames, people shouting, but this like brisk wind, the sound of buildings collapsing. If you were a business owner... And your store was down here? What were you doing at this time? Well, a
0: lot of people were actually racing down. You know, the calls went out because all over the city, the bells were ringing. The all the bells, bells,
1: everybody. Even the prison bells, city hall bells. Like everything was just... Uh Everyone was on high alert.
0: And people were racing down to their warehouses and to their stores to pull out
1: the most valuable merchandise and put it in
0: some kind of a safe haven. Well,
1: they were smashing open their windows and literally just tossing this merchandise into the street just to pick up. The problem with this, though, Tom, which is making the problem worse, and I'll tell you why. Because, you know, as you said, a lot of this was like papers and twine and cloth cloth of all different kinds. Some of this caught on fire, but because it's so small and transportable, it got caught up by the wind. Some of these, like, like little flaming bombs, almost got caught up by the wind, would land in boats on the East River. Some of it got as far away as Brooklyn, and some of the rooftops in on Brooklyn homes even caught on fire wow. from this.
0: The fire grew so strong, in fact, that it was visible to the north in New Haven and as far away south as Philadelphia. <laughs>
1: And this is by midnight by this time. So the fire's now... The fire just started three hours earlier... Now, at midnight, people are look, seeing it from Poughkeepsie, they're seeing it from Philadelphia. So naturally, like, not only are the New York firefighters embattled here, but they're coming from all over the place now. There was even a team from Philadelphia.
0: By midnight, the burning area actually encompassed 17 blocks, so it was growing fast. It seemed like everybody in the city was out to help. Well, at first, it seemed like everybody in the city was out to help because private citizens were coming out with buckets and pails and tubs of water, you know, hoping to do something. There were more than 75 fire wagons and, and hose carts that were trudging their way th- through the snowy streets to get to the scene.
1: By you saying that all of humanity here was united in one cause to uh, prevent this fire from spreading?
0: But not exactly, but we 'll get to the looters in a second okay. but let 's just think about the people again who owned merchandise and they were watching their their businesses burn to the ground they They were grabbing their silks, their satins, even their champagne greg, and heading over initially to Hanover Square, which was thought to be, you know, a safe spot. They were packing uh, a warehouse there full of goods, but soon flames actually jumped over buildings and spread to that warehouse, too, consuming everything in the building. So, you know, other merchants took their goods and packed it into the merchant's exchange, the stock exchange. This is
1: one of the bigger buildings in Manhattan at this time. And,
0: you know, it was a new structure in 1835, thought to be fireproof. Well, at 2 a.m., Sailors from the Navy Yard were actually—they're trying to rescue bits of the Merchant Exchange. They wanted to take an Alexander Hamilton statue. Oh right, there was—it uh, was
1: in the center of a, right, I recall, in the right, middle in the of the exchange. rotunda. Yes,
0: and they were trying to move it to safety because the Merchant Exchange had also caught on fire at that point. And somebody screamed as they were ha- trying to handle the the pedestal, and they had to race out of there. And the whole place just went. Up in flames and collapse, they were not injured because they got out just in the nick of time. It appeared that nothing was safe. You know others in fact, had taken their merchandise over to the Dutch Reformed church on Garden Street and oh, no. an hour later, three a m the fire had started in the church as well. As soon as the edifice of the church actually started to flame up, people started moving their merchandise out. In the midst of this, imagine the smoky, dark, flaming interior. Legend has it that somebody crept up to the pipe organ and started playing a Funeral dirge in the midst of all of this chaos. How uh, creepy. Yes, and somehow appropriate. Then the church went up in flames as well. That was at about three. Okay,
1: so so people are fighting this blaze, but it doesn't sound like a lot of uh, good is being done so far. So some of this merchandise was destroyed. Some of it was saved.
0: Well, and they kept moving it in and out of these different buildings, you know, and so you can imagine the streets were then just strewn with all kinds of fabulous, fancy goods.
1: And, you know, keep in mind, it's icy and snowy, and people are trying to move this so that doesn't, uh, their stuff isn't destroyed. And
0: keep in mind that Five Points, the legendary neighborhood of Hoodlums, was only, you know, a couple blocks away. So when the fire bells went off, it attracted a certain type. Who saw this as a real opportunity to, you know, get their hands on some good
1: loot? I have a quote, actually, from... He would actually become a mayor of New York. His name is Philip Hone. He was one of New York's diarists, Uh, greatest diarists of the 19th century, of describing... There's a medicine you can take for that. I I don't think he was on it, or he he might have been on it when he said this. Quote, The miserable wretches who prowled about the ruins and became beastly drunk on the champagne and other wines and liquors with which the streets and wharves were lined seemed to exult in the misfortune.
0: In fact, yes, turned into a sort of festive affair. There were thousands of people, crowds, that were shoving their way through the streets. Not all of them looters, of course. People who just wanted to see what was going on. The city was on fire.
1: Yeah, some people saw this as a horror show. Some people saw this as an opportunity.
0: Right, and... All of the people were making, for the most part, life more difficult for the firemen who were trying to put out the flames in the first place just because they were crowding the streets. Now, hoodlums and and criminals and... Their entourage came over, and they were just kicking off actually a full day, about 24 hours of looting, where they grabbed an estimated 10,000 bottles of champagne, smashing them, fighting over them, popping them open, drinking, pouring in the snow, getting wildly drunk as they just raged from burning warehouse to burning warehouse grabbing whatever they could grab stashing fine things under their clothes and moving on
1: delirious
0: yes well after 24 hours martial law was finally declared and Marines moved in but I mean you can imagine during that 24 hours it was complete mayhem in fact six men were actually caught trying to spread the fire outside of the burning district with torches trying to light (laughs) other buildings on fire one of them was promptly Hanged from a tree, and he stayed there hanging, dangling in the wind for three days before the police got around to cutting him down.
1: That's a, that's nightmarish. So it's three a.m. now. The f- yes, the fire has been raging for almost six hours. Another area that had actually been ravaged by the flames were some of the early kind of newspaper row, the newspaper district. A lot of the newspapers were up in flames. Some of them them escaped, but one of the newspapers that was sort of battling the flames was a paper called The New York American. The editor of this newspaper's name was Charles King. Well, I mean, understandably, he was completely freaking out. He was running around. He was observing the chaos, not just the... The flames themselves, but all of this madness that was going on, all the looting, but also sort of the ineffectual firefighting that was going on. Everything just looked absolutely h- hopeless, and he ran to the mayor. The, the The mayor and the alderman had come down, and they were doing something. And you know, and Charles was a prominent citizen, so he could run up to the mayor. Right. Um, the mayor at the time during was, a fire. The mayor at the time was named Cornelius Van Wyck Lawrence, and. He ran up to Cornelius, and he, he actually had a radical idea, and that idea was, the only way you're going to stop the fire, and this sounds a little odd, I'm sure Corn- Cornelius was just like, what are you talking about? Blow up some of the buildings that are in the path, like see, see which direction the fire is going, blow up the buildings that are right before there so that it has a sort of a hole that's created, so the mm, fire can't a void. Ju- the a void. so the fire can't jump over the hole and and catch on to the next buildings. So it's just stopping it in its path, but doing it in a very destructive manner. Mm. This was a very risky idea. I mean, was this was controversial to say the least?
0: Sure, but I mean, at that moment, obviously, it looked like the entire city could go up in flames. Well, they
1: had to try something, so they, they sent people out to retrieve um, some explosives and some gunpowder, and there was huge caches of gunpowder and red hook. So they went to get them there. And also there was some in Governor's Island. Mm. So they went to both these places to to get it. Now, keep in mind, how are they bringing it back? They have the icy waters of the East River. They had to go out and get the gunpowder, and then they had to come back with it. But then there was all this fire, and so some of this could, could jump into the boats and ignite some of this gunpowder. So what you had is you had some of these firemen taking off their outer garments down to their underwear okay. in this sub-freezing temperatures – putting this clothing over the big barrels of explosives just to prevent them from catching on fire in the water. They did manage to bring uh, these explosives over to Manhattan. Charles King and some of these city officials located a store that would be a perfect place for this. It it was situated in such a place that if they blew up this one building and it was a dry goods store at 48 Exchange Place, if they blew up this building, the fire would conceivably stop and not jump across the street on Broad Street because if if it moved past broad street this fire actually could actually keep going west and hit broadway and that in that way we'd almost like take over the whole length of the island right so by 5am the fuses were ready and the explosives were set the chief fire engineer of the city though he refused to do this he's like well I, I can't i can't blow up buildings i don't think this is going to work and so the mayor was like well i don't really want to do it i'm not going to do it so eventually this kind of like got passed down the line and so finally this man named James Hamilton was just like, Okay, you know what? Fine. I'll do it. Now interestingly, you had mentioned that a statue of Alexander Hamilton had been destroyed at the Merchants Exchange. Yes. James is his son. His son. Alexander Hamilton's son then blew up the building.
0: Did he have any official elected role, or was he just...
1: He was an official and a prominent citizen. So, I mean, he wasn't just some random person up the the street, but he also had an exalted position. There was a certain sort of symbolism to, you know, the son of a founding son of New York kind of person. So, So that's stopping the fire sort of, like, traveling too far west. Then... To stop the fire from traveling north, the fire has gotten almost up to Wall Street. It has caught a building on fire that I think you know quite well that I just mentioned earlier, the Tontine Coffee House, Mm -hmm. the original home of the Stock Exchange. It started catching on fire, and this would have been deadly because this meant the fire was traveling north, because this is north where these other blazing buildings were. Um, Luckily, however, there were firefighters on hand there, and they did were able to douse the flames. They had a little bit of extra incentive. Now, I've read two different sources. One of them says it was an owner, one of the owners of the Taunting Coffee House, as we know there's many owners. Um, another one says it was just simply a passerby who was like... You have to stop the blaze here. If you can stop the blaze at the Taunting Coffee House, I will donate one hundred dollars to the Volunteer Firefighting Fund. So, with that little dangling incentive, sure enough, they uh, they doused the flames, and the Taunting Coffee House was it was damaged, but it was pretty much saved it took another 24 hours from this time for the fire to really be controlled i mean the entire day of december 17th the fire was still raging the the skies above new york were just clogged with black smoke for the whole day, people were afraid that this fire was going to reignite in some way, but mm. they did—they did end up controlling it. Uh, you know, by December eighteenth, it was pretty much all done.
0: That there were still last dying flames, I think, up to two weeks after it started. They were oh. still putting out little, little flames.
1: God, how terrifying! Because any of those things could have just ignited to another fire. I mean, any moment. So,
0: well, the day after the fire, business, obviously as usual, was suspended. Uh, the stock market was obviously closed because it had burned and collapsed. Thousands and thousands of people came out of their homes the next day and came down to the burn district of 17 blocks, 52 acres of lower Manhattan, to see what had happened. They were looking at South Street, Front Street, Pearl Street, Stone, Beaver, Water, Merchant, and Hanover. All of these streets, the entire south side of Wall Street, from William Street to South Street burned and charred, looking at the remains of these warehouses and factories and their trading house, and thinking really that first day that the city could never recover from this, because this was their financial and their commercial center, there were six hundred and ninety-three buildings that had been burned. Well
1: it just must have looked impossible. I mean, how do you how do you clear all that away and start over? Like right. from the, at least from the, that first week, I can definitely see that perspective.
0: Right. And with an estimated loss of twenty to twenty-five million dollars in eighteen thirty-five dollars, the amount that was insured. $10 million by different fire insurance companies at the time was just so high that there was no way that the insurance companies could repay those losses. And many of these insurance companies, most of them went out of business, as did
1: many of the banks. Well, and many of those insurance companies had buildings in that were there anyway, right, so they right. couldn't insure themselves. Like They were completely wiped off the map.
0: And you know, many of the factories had to close permanently because they couldn't collect their insurance. They couldn't get money from the banks to buy new merchandise, and so there was just a very sad scene of people returning to their factories and to their shops, and they didn't know how they would move on. This actually led to another topic, which we'll have to talk about, the Panic of 1837, two years later. This was one of the key things that led into it.
1: What's amazing to me, with all this damage, all these buildings, only two people died. Right, right. Which is an extraordinary figure. This fire, there was like a much smaller fire that had happened two days before mm-hmm. which you mentioned, um, like five people died in that fire. And it was a much smaller blaze. It's just it's amazing. Again, to me.
0: this was not a residential area, uh, so I think that that, that helped. In a sense, well, if it's
1: one thing that you're, you know, we're lucky for. I mean, this could have been a could have been terribly catastrophic.
0: And you know, there were a certain number of residences in this district, and this is yet another thing that would push even those people, the remaining people downtown, to move uptown to more fashionable residential districts and get out of that commercial. So as the area was rebuilt, this is yeah.
1: So now we're getting to really the long-lasting effects of what this fire is, and that's one of them. Like this area from here on out really stop being residential in any way. Um, It's funny because now you go down there and there's all these new, there's new condos and things. It's right. almost like returning a little bit back sure. to how it used to be. One of the things that was, of course, permanently changed by this was the, the water supply. I mean, that was the big problem was getting water to fight this fire because of, the, because of the freezing cold. And also keep in mind that cholera epidemic that you had just mentioned. Between the two of these things, it was like New York has to improve its water supply. It just had to. So two years later began the construction of the Croton Aqueduct. Mm-hmm. Which would bring water down from Westchester County and um, would distribute fresh water through a series of reservoirs into the city. Because of this tragedy, fire organizations improved and the equipment improved. A state authorized fire department was actually organized in 1865 with the city version. So, the, I guess, the birth of the New York Fire Department of. New York City was in 1870, mm-hmm. so things were uh, things were steadily improving there. But I think most important was really the rebuilding efforts of this area. So, so a week after, and you're looking at the area, like how can we possibly re- rebuild this? Well, keep in mind, you know, there's all of this money coming in from the Erie Canal, and you know, New York is still building as a as a financial empire. And some money
0: came from the state, the federal government. I don't believe gave any money to the rebuilding effort. And again, I mean, I almost get shivers when I'm even <laughs> saying that, you know, there's so much happening, but let's just say it's such a poignant subject now, just thinking of rebuilding in this area, federal money, state money coming into it, and,
1: and an area that does recover. What's interesting is part of the what made people move back to this area, like want to build their like build their offices here again, was that the city had promised to widen the streets, because these were very, very narrow streets for... They were very close together, and was part of the reasons that the fire spread so quickly. So the city promised to widen the streets, and that actually made room for like for the opportunity to build really modern structures. Believe it or not, the price of the real estate in this area skyrocketed mm. in the years following the Great Fire. These old Dutch structures that had been there for like a couple hundred years, they were all replaced with these brand new Greek Revivalist structures. These big, mighty bank structures. Mm. Some of which are still there today. Yeah, many of them are. A, a great example, the street the street I had mentioned earlier, where you can kind of see the evidence of the Great Fire, yeah. but one of the most charming streets in fi- the financial district, Stone Street, you know, it has the like those taverns and restaurants I on it. It's impressed. a nice little street. Most of the buildings on that street were built in 1836. Mm-hmm. They were built the year after the fire, and most of them are still standing um, and they were built sort of like with this in mind that it was going to be less of a residential area and more of a place for for just true commerce. Other buildings that were replaced with more elaborate structures were, for instance, Delmonico's original restaurant had been was destroyed in the fire. They rebuilt into this triangular building that's still down there today, right off of Beaver Street. A new merchant exchange building was built, and you know all the riches that were gleaned from the. Erie Canal profits were poured right into all these fantastic buildings. And of course, it became a, a home for banks and for all these financial institutions. You know, it's almost like it cleared away the past. It sort of knocked everything off the table and started over again. It sort of created a clean canvas for the new urban environment that would develop. And this, the, the shape of the financial district today is in part because of what happened here in the fire and how people reacted to it afterwards. More significantly, after this, there will be no more great fires. There will be no no more fires that truly like wipe out swaths of blocks and endanger thousands of people's lives. There would, of course, be a lot of individual, terrible disasters in the city, You know things like the Brooklyn Theater Fire in 1876, of course, the Triangle Factory Fire, of course, 9-11. Our city will never escape the sort of specter of fire and dangers of fire, but you will never have, after 1835, these kinds of fires that would threaten the existence of the entire city. So
0: thank you for joining us today as we look back to the Great Fire of 1835. I would like to give a special shout-out to my friend Herbert Asbury.
1: Oh, uh, of uh, Gangs of New York fame?
0: Yes, who wrote an amazing piece where I got a lot of my information that appeared in the New Yorker magazine in 1930. And if you are a subscriber to the New Yorker magazine, you can search through their archives for, I believe, any article that has appeared, and the fun part is you can see it in its original format. These have been sc- scanned in, so they're PDFs, and you see the original. Oh, the ads, ads, the are ads are along, and things al- along with it. Yes, the month that this was appearing, uh, the PR Hotel was about to open, and oh, wow, right? There are other fascinating, fascinating ads.
1: If we've ignited your interest in the oh. Great Fire of eighteen thirty-five, please visit our blog BoweryBoysPodcast.com. dot Um, where I'll have a few pictures. There aren't a lot of pictures, understandably, from the fire of 1835, but there's lots of illustrations and paintings and everything. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.